My name is Phil Stinson. Uh, I'm on the faculty at Bowling Green State University, and joining me this afternoon is my colleague Steve Brewer, who's on the faculty at Penn State Shenango. Also, our co-investigators John Lederbach and Steve Lab couldn't join us this afternoon. I am contractually obligated to say that this research is funded by the National Institute of Justice and that the opinions, conclusions, and or recommendations this afternoon are ours alone and not necessarily those of the Department of Justice. You know, as a recovering lawyer, I just can't get away from these kinds of things, John. <laughs> can't help myself at times. It's in the contract. What can I say? All right. This study, uh, Police Integrity Lost, the study of sworn law enforcement officers arrested across uh, the United States is what we're presenting on today. And I just want to very, very briefly talk about uh, some of the research, and only in a very cursory way, and I'm leaving out most of it. But the, there are three very relevant areas. One is, a lot of what we know about police corruption, police misconduct, and crime by police officers is what we know from investigative reporters. And if you go back to the Knapp Commission and you look at uh, how, how the Knapp Commission came to be and the reporting done at the New York Times, if you look at the work more recently in the Philadelphia Inquirer and the, and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and there are many other examples, but we do know a lot about specific agencies, typically large uh, law enforcement agencies across the country, a handful of them from investigative reporting over the years. We also, as I mentioned, the Knapp Commission, every 20 years or so, something happens in New York and we end up with uh, an independent commission to deal with corruption-related problems going way back well over 100 years at this point. So we're due any day now for something like that, I suppose, in New York. And a lot of our research questions come from specifically the Mullen Commission and different types of shakedowns with drug-related crimes and things like that. So we do build on that. And then just a very few of the studies that have been done over the year. I always like to talk about Albert J. Rice and the police and the public because the thing that interested me about that observational research is that about 23% of the officers who had researchers riding along with them committed crimes in the presence of the researchers, and I really think that's interesting. And I do think, to a large extent, that uh, you know my work would not be possible without what Jim Fife did, and if you look at Fife and Kane with the career-ending misconduct in the NYPD, I think that's an important study that gets us to where we're doing our research. Many years ago, as a recruit at the New Hampshire State Police Academy, I was told quite loosely something along the lines of there are three things that will get you in trouble, booze, broads, and bucks, something along those lines. And I thought about that years later, and borrowing from some of Jim Fife's work and other things, came up with a typology. And these are not mutually exclusive categories. They're each their own uh, binary variable that almost all the crime by police officers is violence-related, sex-related, drug-related, alcohol-related, and or profit-motivated. And a lot of our research questions flow from that. So this is a multi-year study. It's a content analysis primarily of news articles, and we rely heavily on the Google News search engine and 48 automated Google alert terms that I set up back at the end of 2004 and just let them rip. Uh, when we get a hit on any one of those, constantly crawling the universe of the Google News search engine, we get an email with a hit and we see if it's a relevant article uh, to the study. This NIJ study is seven years of research where we're looking at cases from the years 2005 through 2011, and our primary unit of analysis is criminal case. So if an officer is arrested for three rapes, there would be three separate cases if there were three separate victims or three separate dates where you could have different criminal case outcomes. Also, one of the things that we're constantly working on is assessing intercoded reliability, and we found a long time ago it's just not enough to look at the simple percentage of agreement across variables between coders, which is typically 96 to 97 
7% overall with our variables. But more recently, we've been looking at calculating the Krippendorf's alpha coefficient. And in our recent studies, we haven't done the final intercoded reliability assessments for this study yet, but 0.9191 and 0.9174 are the two most recent coefficients, and those are uh, studies that deal with sex-related crime. As with all research, there are strengths and limitations to this research. Google News has become a preferred method of collecting information from the media and news articles. Obviously, the research is limited by the quality and content of the article. We only have data on official arrests, and obviously there's a filtering process that goes into publishing any news article on the Internet and in print journalism as well. We have a rather sophisticated, in my opinion, database that includes a digital imaging database and a relational database, and we now have a video database because it's always great on the local news to start the 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock news with a story on a police officer getting arrested. And we've been able to triangulate our data sources and verify different things by looking at these videos. So as of the end of June of this year, we had, uh, and this is not just in the seven years, but in our database, over 8,100 arrest cases involving about 6,800 officers, and our digital imaging database includes almost 170,000 scanned pages consisting of about 17,000 image file format documents that consist of almost, well, about 15,500 coding sheets and about 5,100 PDF documents from the PACER system, which is the Public Access to Courts Electronic Record System. And if you're not familiar with it, it allows you to become a voyeur in the clerk's office in any federal courthouse. It's an amazing resource. And we have about 1,200 news media video files in the database at this point. So as to these seven years, what we're looking at today, and we're not quite finished with the study. We have about 400 cases to go. But we have today 6,239 cases involving... 5,183 non-federal sworn law enforcement officers in 2,423 employing agencies in 1,161 counties and independent cities. So the independent cities would be those in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland, St. Louis, and Carson City, Nevada. When we look at the number of sworn officers that have been arrested, and here again we are, this is actually the unit of analysis, keep in mind, is arrest cases. And with the 450 or so cases we're still coding, the last four or five years will level off at roughly 1,100 cases a year. This first year, I was still developing the search terms in 2005, so that's why we see the numbers there that are different. And here, if you look, these are actually all the cases through earlier this year, beginning in 2005, and we like to call this vegetable medley. And what we look here at the county level and the independent cities, uh, the darker red colors are where we have more cases. So you can see it's every state in the United States are the fewest number of cases being in Wyoming, Vermont, and uh, the state of Maine. One thing I noticed early on is that you know, John Van Manen's research would say that police officers are socialized in a four-step process where you have introduction, you have the entry, an encounter, and some sort of a metamorphosis. And that's pretty much it. And that officers get in trouble in the first four years or so of their career, four or five years maybe, and then they just write it out. What we found, though, is we saw that there, if you think of the life course of a law enforcement officer, many law enforcement officers work 20 years, sometimes they have 25 or 30 year retirement. We see a blip. We see an increase in the criminal arrests of officers starting at 18 to 20 years. And if you were to draw lines up, you'd see it's right at 25, right at 30, and right at 35 years. It's really interesting. And this is holding up even with the seven years of data. Now, this is just looking at my typology, and you can see here that the red being violence-related crime, that throughout a law enforcement officer's career, 
all the way up until the mid-30s where profit-motivated takes over for a little bit, that it's violence-related crime that's really what's driving things here. And then we look here at the most serious offense charged in each of the cases, and blue being simple assault and DUI being this green here, this being murder and non-negligent manslaughter. And you can see that same sort of thing. And this is obviously a little bit confusing. I think it, it raises some interesting possibilities for research and thinking of this as life course criminology across the life of an officer's career. One of the things I wanted to look at was as a correlate of police misconduct, looking at officers who were sued in federal court for violating somebody's civil rights. And if we look at the typology again, an arrest case being, or actually here, this is a difference in that we've got arrest cases, but our unit of analysis is actually officer. But here, when we look at arrest cases that are drug-related, almost 31% of the officers who are arrested for drug-related crime at some point in their career have been sued under 42 U.S.C. 1983 for violating somebody's civil rights in their official capacity. And violence-related is right below that, and the lowest being the alcohol-related crimes. And you can look at this in the handout in more detail, but looking at some of the descriptive statistics on the officers here, about 95% of the cases involve male officers, about 72% of municipal law enforcement agencies. And it's spread throughout agencies from just part-time agent officers to up to you know the NYPD, which is the largest agency. Um, over 80% are in metropolitan counties. And here is just the cases in terms of the most serious offense charged. If you look at ag assault and simple assault, it's well over 20% of the cases are assault-related cases as being the most serious offense charged. And then forcible rape and forcible fondling, you know, right behind it in terms of the numbers. And again, this is on the handout as well. I wanted to just skip right to looking at the multivariate analyses, and we have two ways of looking at it. We do a lot of our research where we're dealing with binary dependent variables, and we also, uh, in terms of uh, binary logistic regression, and we've also been using decision tree analysis that's helped us uh, really get a better grip on how these variables are operating and working together. One of the things I noticed, as soon as we have so many cases now, over 6,000 cases, we're able to put much more robust models together. We've got a lot more variables. It's a lot easier to put the models together. Uh, things are working out with the progression diagnostics a lot easier, that type of thing. And here, all the way down to location of violence, here we're predicting job loss. Simple odds of job loss increase for all of these down to location of violence and then decrease for alcohol-related and below. Here, if you have an officer-involved domestic violence arrest case where they use something other than their hands and fists as a weapon, a body part, so they kick somebody, they spit on somebody, you're more likely to lose your job in those type of situations. Interesting here, if you've been sued at some point for a civil rights conspiracy in federal court, you're more likely to lose your job. It may or may not be a case that's related to the arrest case. And then we also have a model that predicts criminal conviction. And here, all the way down to arresting agencies, not the officer's employer, everything above that, uh, the simple odds of conviction go up with each of these and then go down from violence-related and below. The simple odds of conviction are over nine times greater if the officer's arrested for child pornography, and that makes sense. And there aren't any real surprises here. Interestingly, more liable to be convicted for domestic violence. However, nonviolent family offenses, and they're less likely to be convicted for. So I'm going to pass it to Steve now to talk to us with the decision tree analysis. The basic premise of a decision tree analysis and how it supplements a logistic regression model, um, we understand in the logit model that sex-related crimes are important in predicting job loss. 
but to what extent, we don't know. We just know it's a significant variable. What the decision tree allows us to do is to separate it out by attributes. Here we have sex-related as an important statistically significant variable, but the decision tree allows it to look at both groups, sex-related cases and non-sex-related. So here we can actually predict subsamples within this data. And the decision tree analysis allows us to look at what is the most significant variable, number one, which is sex-related. And then it predicts it based upon those attributes. Here we have sex-related, non-select, sex-related. And then it allows us to look at subsamples based upon its physical significance. For the sex-related cases, the next most important variable is whether or not the officer was suspended for a period of time. For the non-sex-related cases, then we look at race. And that was the next most significant predictor job loss. Um, and then we can keep going farther down the tree. Essentially what the decision tree does is it takes all the variables that we use in our model and eliminates everything that's not statistically significant and allows us really to create pathways to understand the different pathways that officers have to go through to predict job loss. What we did on the next slide in this second model is to eliminate this variable of officer suspension and see what the difference was there. We eliminated officer suspension if you look down here at this level. And it's now replaced by other sex crime, race. We also have the county, whether it's a metropolitan county or non-metropolitan county, and also family violence. So those variables actually moved farther up the tree after we eliminated the impact of whether or not an officer was previously suspended. Our last model, which looks at predicting criminal conviction, whether or not the officer was convicted of a crime. The most important variable there is whether or not the victim was injured non-fatally. Uh, we have two major categories, yes, they were, and then we have category over here, there were no injuries at all. And then the, for the group that were non-fatal injuries, we have whether or not their officer was terminated from their employment, and for the non-injuries, we have whether or not they were reassigned to another position. Uh, I'm not going to explain all the levels of the tree, hopefully you have some questions for that a little bit over time, so for Q&A we can get more in depth into that. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Lost podcast. It was recorded in November of 2013 in Atlanta, Georgia, at the annual conference of the American Society of Criminology. For more information on our research, please go to www.bgsu.edu forward slash police integrity lost.